You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our great sponsors, M8Z Choice and Harry's, for continuing to support the SpyCast family. We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to SpyCast, HelloFresh. You'll hear more about these innovative companies a little later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we're joined today by Ben Jones, who is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences for Dakota State University. Prior to that, he was an Assistant Professor of History at the United States Air Force Academy. While there, he served as Deputy Head for International History and supervised the instruction of the Air Force Academy's core world history course, and their area history courses taught by eight to 10 other professors and instructors. Prior to teaching at the academy, he spent 23 years in the United States Air Force, retiring as a lieutenant colonel. From January 2011 to January 2012, Ben was a transition coordinator for the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, where he coordinated the transfer of Afghan security from the coalition to the Afghan National Security Forces. He also served as an advisor team chief for the National Military Academy of Afghanistan. He's the author of Eisenhower's Guerrillas, The Jedbergs, The Maquis, and The Liberation of France, and is a contributor to a newish book, our latest longest war, losing hearts and minds in Afghanistan. If you want to hear uh, an earlier spy cast from about a year ago about his early book, Eisenhower's Guerrillas, uh, that was done. Uh, Peter Ernest did the interview, uh, and it's about from, I think, May of 2016. So thank you for coming back, Ben. Welcome to SpyCast. We enjoy having you here You're for a second time. So I, I want to ask a question about how this book came together. Because it, it's got some heavyweights as contributors. These are people that really know and understand the war in Afghanistan. So what, what brought this volume together? Yeah, Aaron O'Connell, who uh, served at, at the headquarters ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force, uh, in 2000, I think he got there in 2010, 2011. He was having a conversation with Ambassador Newman, and he mentions that in the, at the beginning of the book, that they were, uh, Ambassador Newman, who had been ambassador to Afghanistan, was visiting Afghanistan and uh, seeing probably General Petraeus at the time. And in a conversation they were having while waiting about uh, on one of their trips around the country, uh, they mentioned something about um, the desire to, to get um, some of the people together who were trying to implement the counterinsurgency strategy and compare that to what the manual said you were supposed to do versus what was really happening right. on the ground. <laughs> and I think Aaron came back from that and a few years later uh, rejoined the Naval Academy's history department and uh, shopped the idea to uh, Chicago or University of Chicago Press. They had published that uh, coin field manual, and uh, they thought that was a great idea. And then he started um, confirming other people's contributions to that. He contacted me, I think, in the spring, spring of 2014 and uh, asked me to write the chapter on the transition. But he had already lined up some of the other people, right. including Ambassador Newman. It, the subtitle of the book is somewhat depressing. Yes. Yeah, Losing Hearts and Minds in Afghanistan. Right. Always, it's a play on right. going all the way back to even before Vietnam, but kind of the, the phrase that became very popular in Vietnam, winning hearts and minds. Uh, we're going to get into a little bit of the transition, because that's certainly your focus. I, I look back at all the different podcasts that we've done over the years and realize that we had given pretty short shrift to uh, the actual events that took place in Afghanistan. I think most people out there know why we went to Afghanistan, although right. uh, freshmen in college now were babies at 9-11. Uh, yeah, uh, just people who uh, 
you know, you, you assume that everybody knows what we're talking about, but some right. people just didn't live it. Right. And so I, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about some of the kind of key misunderstandings, uh, the key reasons that some of this counterinsurgency theory didn't work yeah. in Afghanistan and kind of take it a little bit moving across because really the theme of the book is kind of this cultural friction yes. that prevented us from accomplishing the mission we set out to do. Uh, and, and kind of the meat and potatoes of it is uh, we tried to impose our core beliefs, our ideas on a country that had centuries more history and culture than we ever mm-hmm. will. Um, why, why was the collision of culture such a problem in moving? I mean, it's not the first time, right? Vietnam right. had very different kind of right. cultural understandings. I mean, right. a lot of the wars, the Japanese have been around for millennia. Yeah. Little, I mean, we had no real issues after the war and kind of mm-hmm. getting them to mm-hmm. buy into our ideals. Uh, what made Afghanistan so different? Well, I think fundamentally a different understanding of the right and just use of power, authority. So many fundamental questions about a culture uh, were just foreign to us. And we assumed certain things. And I think the greatest thing that we assumed that went wrong was the assumption that they wanted uh, individual freedom and liberty like we would define that. You know, you're you're chuckling, and I think most people will chuckle. (laughs) But when you think of, you know, we're on the 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 back end of de Tocqueville and and a lot of modern enlightenment thinkers and we are we we consider ourselves kind of enjoying the fruit of their labor uh, and then we seek to go to places like Vietnam South Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq and take our bureauc- bureaucracy our laws our methods and our culture that we don't necessarily understand anymore because it's just kind of all around us and layer it on top of them. The phrase that I really like to describe is this government in a box. Right. Which just is, and you have really smart people like General McChrystal and General Petraeus uh, assuming that this would work and that if they provided, if we provided uh, uh, economic development and security that uh, the insurgency would be um, squelched or, would, or wouldn't get any steam behind it. This idea of, like, you, you should be a parliamentary democracy. You want to be a parliamentary democracy. Mm-hmm. democracy and if you resist, we're going to kill you until you become a parliamentary democracy. Right. It's one of the kind of this weird contradiction of you want this, but we're going to force you to have it by the point of a gun. Right. just seems like it was doomed from the very beginning. Well, it it, it kind of points down to a little bit different uh, alignment than that, I think. You can, I think what we fundamentally missed was the chance to understand where they would come from. If we had gone in there with a lighter footprint and say in about 2004, 2005, maybe like the British in Malaya or something where it was very much an economy of force operation for that, for them in Malaya in the 1950s, and they ascertain what are the strengths of the insurgency, what are the strengths of the government, and where are they coming from. And they were able to understand that it was a foreign-based insurgency, and to some extent that's the, that's the truth in Afghanistan right. as well. Um, we kind of refused to admit that the Pakistanis were really a part of the problem, keeping the Taliban going. Uh, I had, in my first tour in Afghanistan, I'd have Afghan cadets come up to me and say, why is the United States funding the Taliban? Right. And this question just puzzled me. How can you think that we're funding the Taliban? Well, of course, in a way, we were, because the Pakistanis were supporting the Taliban, and we're funding the Pakistanis with F-16 equipment and other things, of course. And, you know, the Pakistanis with their nuclear weapons, they command some respect for that reason, uh, and so we're kind of in a tough spot with how to treat the Pakistanis. But I think... um, trying to get at the notion of what is a just uh, or what is a native understanding of the right use of authority and then build out from there. I think one of the chapters in the book that does offer some um, hope for how the war potentially could go is the village stability operations in the ALP, the Afghan local police, where our special forces were going around the country trying to discern and what are the localities and the communities who want uh, uh, Afghan local police 
operating in your area and would allow them to um, build upon that. And so they would, they would negotiate who might, you know, if there's two or three clans in that community, uh, how many young men would each clan give over? What's the purpose of this? Where would the checkpoints be? And so forth. And then they would all kind of agree to this. And then uh, opportunities would come later for standing up that force with a little bit small, with a little bit uh, more uh, special forces presence, in addition to picking young men who would participate in this and arming them with AK-47s, and uh, and then a command link back to Kabul. Mm-hmm. But it was very much of that community. So. Well, the community base thing, I mean, for, for, for anyone that doesn't know the basics of Afghanistan and its history, the community base thing has to be a key component to this because this is not a, although they've been a civilization for hundreds and hundreds of years, this right. is not like a centralized government stretching out from no. Kabul where everyone, I mean, we take it for granted in the United States that until very recently, the Democrats and the Republicans were basically agreed on most things, right? Yeah. We agreed the Constitution made a lot of sense. We yep. agreed in... I don't don't freak out Republican the liberal democracy you know model built back during the Enlightenment. Right. That's not the case in Afghanistan where tribal right. uh, issues go back centuries. Right. Where they've never had a fully formed centralized government right. coming out of Kabul. Um, I mean, at least yeah. one that we would recognize as similar yeah. to ours. I, I wonder. So the, the reason I'm, I'm leading to a question here is this book really does focus on kind of the cultural aspects and the cultural misunderstandings and. And in many ways, you might have the, the weekend warriors, the tough guys out there saying, culture, why do we care about culture? But if you're looking at a metric to describe how we've had so much difficulty in Afghanistan, yeah. you can't look at anything but that. Because we had every advantage everywhere else. Right. We had all the money. We had all the technology. We had all the weapons. We had the best trained soldiers in the world. Mm-hmm. Something had to have stood in the way of us going in there and winning the war in about 20 minutes. And culture seems yeah. to be that predominant issue. Right. Well, I think, too, part of the problem is the understanding that, you know, in some ways, World War II didn't end until, what, 1991? Right. With the 2 plus 4 treaty? Yeah. Um, the occupation of Germany and then the Cold War beginning and these other international issues and so forth. Uh, Korea, the war still there. It, it isn't over. So in the end, you have to kind of win the peace. Um, and this is what we've been trying to do in Afghanistan. The, the Afghan war started out of a civil war in 1976 or 1977 or so with a riot in Herat that then the Soviets uh, wanted to support their their socialist communist government brothers in Afghanistan and the situation was getting out of control and so they had to go in there they they felt sucked in they they, they in a situation if you read over the um the Cold War International History Project has all of the uh, deliberations mm-hmm. of the Politburo. They're re- really tortured. I mean, you can you can almost feel sorry for these guys about uh, the bads. You know, what do we do? We can't look weak in front of the Americans. And so, so there's all kinds of international reasons why the Soviets, why the United States, why um, other nations that are in the ISAF coalition go into Afghanistan. But really the problem is an Afghan problem. Thomas Barfield's book, uh, which we all read when we got over there, if we hadn't read when we showed up, about the uh, political uh, geography in Afghanistan um, is amazing, and he he uses this metaphor that that uh, Afghanistan is kind of like Swiss cheese. There's the holes in the cheese that you don't care about, and then there's the cheese that you do care about. And Afghan governments, Afghan leaders, from 1747 up until the present day, have tent that have been successful, have tended not to care about the little nicks of valleys and the mm-hmm. little niches of, of parts and so forth that might be problematic to run the whole country with an iron fist. So they would just let them go. And if you wanted to live your life and up in Nuristan and not be not bother Kabul and Kandahar and the major centers of, of modernized uh, commercial traffic or, or uh, religion or major centers of culture, you could do that. Um, and the coalition didn't look at it that way. We right. we let the, the the gaps in the Swiss cheese, in many ways, mattered as much to us as the cheese did. And we should have. Uh, we came up with a phrase: uh, key terrain uh, districts, uh, that that were kind of areas of of uh, metrics you talked mm-hmm. about, 
where you're trying to control these key drain districts. Um, and some of them should, should have just been written off as not really part of that. They were that gaps in the Swiss cheese that, that, uh, right. that successful Afghan governments uh, wrote off and that we should have been able to do that, too. I mean, you know, you're, you're ex-military, so this may be the wrong question to ask, but you can kind of objectively face it. Mm-hmm. How much of the problem of Afghans' rebuild or, or of the, uh, the attempt to turn this into a fully functioning government was that the military was really at the forefront of doing this operation, kind of almost yeah. almost stiff-arming others out. I mean, all the money went to the military, the reduction in fundings for, like, State Department, and even, you know, during yeah. the time you talk about in the chapter on transition was that mm-hmm. it was really a, a ISAF thing. It, you know, the diplomats and others were not being yeah. asked about this. I think by the time that I talk about it in my chapter that it's getting there, it had become that. But the civilian surge that Secretary Clinton talked about we wanted that to happen. We wanted tons of State Department guys out in the field. Uh, I think personally I got very jaded about most of them seemed to be in the embassy. There were one or two running around that would come back from uh, Ghazni or Kandahar or Garmsar Pravis with, with interesting interest, uh, ties and information about what was going on, but they were never really able to amp that up. And so because they weren't able to order State Department people, to go to certain places and to do and to run this type of civilian construction out of PRTs, for instance, the provincial reconstruction mm-hmm. teams, uh, the military wound up doing it, uh, and and General Petraeus wanted it done. I I had a colleague one time as a civilian. She was an AFPAC hand, and she was trying to explain uh, after a meeting broken up to some USAID people uh, what was going on, and these people were new to the country, and they felt like the military was steamrolling everything. And she said, look, you know, these guys, their four-star is giving them an order, and they're going to do it. Your director from Washington has given you an order, too. You're not doing anything. <laughs> so they're going to do it. And if you're not, they're going to do it. Right. Um, and that's kind of the, the way that we looked. We, you know, it was just these multi-tiered bureaucracies layered in, everybody doing four months, six months, 12-month rotations, um, not a lot of... Um, intellectual staying power uh if you look at the commanders cycling in and out you know some folks doing just one year i think uh Petraeus was there a year uh, mccrystal was there almost a year uh allen i think for two two and a half uh campbell for about the same time and now nicholson has been back and forth many times uh in fact i worked for him as i mentioned in the chapter he was the two-star i worked mm-hmm. for and now he's the four-star over there so he brings a lot of uh, background to this too um, but is that an issue? I mean, I understand why they're cycling so many people through there. Because, yeah. it's, uh, new, it's just part of our problems. Yeah. Uh, the, the careerism or so forth, moving up along the promotion ladder, you can't be in a job too long. Uh, the mentality in Washington within the Pentagon and the personnel system, it's, it's uh, not as bad as it was during Vietnam, but it's not a whole lot better. Let me pause for a quick minute to tell you more about Harry's. We just finished off one holiday where we were forced to struggle over what to get the important people in our lives. Now comes another. Father's Day is just around the corner. And dads are impossible to shop for. It's always difficult to find something that feels special but he'll actually use, which means we wait until the last minute to find a gift. Fortunately, our friends at over at Harry's have a special offer that you're going to love and dad will too. Get $5 off one of their shave sets, including a limited edition Father's Day set at harrys.com slash spycast. Look, Everyone tells you they have the best products, and you get inundated with ads across all mediums saying this product or that product is the best. You and your dad are probably a lot like me. We don't fall for silly ads promising things that just aren't true. That's why I want to tell you more about how Harry's manufactures their razors, and this is what I find absolutely coolest thing about them. They bought a German factory, which means that they own the entire process, from grinding high-grade steel to sending razors to your door. That means they can continually innovate to make your shave even better. Their team in Germany has been grinding high-grade steel into some of the world's sharpest blades since 1920. Today, more than 400 German engineers, designers, craftsmen, and production workers build and operate sophisticated custom equipment that produces millions of precision blades every year. What this means for you and your dad, their blades will get even better. Your shave will get even better. They'll listen to your feedback of what makes a great shave and use their expertise to develop products that deliver you that experience. Your dad will be proud you found something of such high quality. Shave sets start at just $15, and that's not to mention $5 off 
when you go to harrys.com slash spycast. You get a razor handle, moisturizing shave gel, and three of Harry's five-blade precision-engineered razors. Harry's limited edition Father's Day shave set comes with a storm gray razor handle, chrome razor stand, foaming shave gel, three replacement blades, and a travel cover. Plus, it comes in a sleek, giftable box with the option to add custom engraving and personalized card for free. So go to harrys.com slash spycast right now to redeem a special offer for fans of this show. Harry's will give you $5 off one of their shave sets. This is for a limited time only, so act now. That's harrys.com slash spycast to get $5 off and to help support the show. Let me talk about Vietnam. We're both historians sure. here. We, 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 you look at it, this has been compared to Vietnam. It's hard yeah. to miss those comparisons. Yeah. Particularly when, it, when you look at, we talked about metrics before, about things like looking at success by bringing back really, really what turns out to be a body count argument in Afghanistan. Kind of yeah. like saying, like, oh, we're winning because we're killing way more of the Taliban than they're killing of us, you know, or killing of the Afghan security forces. Um, kind of trying to bring back quantifiable metrics yeah. for success, which if you're talking about culture, that doesn't seem to be something that you'd want yeah. to do. Well, when I, w- when I was there, I think what, the, what was statistically valid in our minds was the number of enemy attacks uh, and other things that registered to enemy activity. And when enemy activity was down, it could be down for a number of things, but one of those things could be their capability is just less. And so if it's down over a longer period of time or less than it was last year during the summer fighting season right. and this type of cycle of activity that you'd, you'd expect the uh, Taliban to go through, then that could be seen as, and we did view it, and I think perhaps with some validity, that that was uh, a, a positive sign of progress, that there's less activity than there was last year, and now we have uh, maybe they're on the ropes here. And so you could kind of point to that. So I don't, we, right. we never counted, you know, yeah. dead soldiers, uh, dead, uh, but there was numbers of enemy attacks uh, and types of attacks, tactics that we're using that we could then cycle back into our uh, procedures that, that would help us defend ourselves. Let me ask you about some of the kind of key points of Afghan culture that it seems we, maybe everyone didn't know as well as they should have going yeah. in. Certainly, you know, the joke with Afghanistan, it's a sad joke, was that, you know, we're not the first to try, you know, right. you know, right. going back to Alexander the Great. Right. And, you know, everybody since then, some empires like the British in the 19th century, right. the you know, strongest empire that maybe ever existed compared to others. Yeah. Certainly the Soviets at the height of their power yeah. tried. You know, was this, was it hubris to think that we could make it work when no one else could before us? Yeah, I think you have to be careful in understanding what the British and the Russians at the time were trying to do. That was a part of the great game in the defense of India. So the British were happy to go into the country, uh, conduct a, a retribution type of raid, a reconnaissance, make a statement, and leave. There was no attempt to kind of set up a British-style government right. in Afghanistan. They'd buy off a few people if they had needed to, um, win a battle or two, make a point, and get out of there. Uh, the Soviet or the Russians at the, top, at the time... Same type of thing. Um, Alexander, uh, it'd be interesting to get into his mind and so forth. <laughs> I joked at the time, you know, one of the reasons why he was successful is because he married into the, one of the clans. And uh, General Petraeus probably wasn't going to do that. Right. <laughs> so um, he, he uh, Alexander, then kind of absorbed uh, some of the Afghan culture. The Afghan culture absorbed an incredible amount of Hellenism. Uh, if you go to some of the cities, you can see some of the things hmm. uh, that, that exist from from when the Greeks were there. Um, one of the translators I met, his name was Iskander. You know, this was a, uh, an Afghan version of Alexander. Right. Um, so you, you have to, con- when you compare and contrast, I think, previous empires, oh, yeah, you course. have to understand what are their goals, what are their yeah. intentions, and so forth, and then why are they fighting? Most of the times they were fighting in Afghanistan had nothing to do with Afghanistan. Yeah. It had to do with international politics. Uh, and I think our uh, current role is complicated because we do have a sense of rooting out terrorists in Afghanistan and making sure they can never use it as a base again. But we also kind of have this you know, Enlightenment liberal notion that Aaron McLean talks about in his chapter that that uh, we just assume that um, 
what an Afghan view or what we would view as a just and right cause, a use of force or violence and so forth, they also would see it that way. Right. And, so, and at the individual level, uh, from the Marine perspective in Garmsar Province and so forth, they don't see it that way. And so our, ac- our action at the tactical on, yeah. level, it, you can't imagine now, we had in 2011 over 100,000 Americans there. Try and, and teach that cultural level of sophistication to the Marine to the soldier, to the sailor, e- even the PRTs, which are get uh, six months or so of training before they go over, about cultural things and some right. language training, it's just hard to explain, and it's hard for us to understand. What was this concept of the Pashtun Wali? Like, right. it goes back right. centuries and centuries, yes. and it's just, it's you pre- read it, and you're like, oh, this is so Islamic. arcane, and Islamic, yeah. it's, they, it predates right. you know, Western liberalism. Right. I mean, it's just, right. uh, and just going in there and saying, this is stupid. Yeah, it's not a good way to win a war. Especially yeah, if they're trying to win over hearts and minds. Right. It, 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 well, the lone survivor. If you're familiar yeah. with that book in the movie, you know that's what saves uh, the, the one seal who gets out. Well, of I, I'm an MNX tanker going back to a little-known movie called uh, the The Beast. Back okay. in, which was about a Soviet tank crew that okay. gets kind of lost in Afghanistan and one of their. Oh wow. Yeah. So it's based, same yeah. basic idea. Yeah. But you know, these are kind of internal rules are not written down. They've been That's around right. for centuries. That's right. And they really have a very different perspective on things that are important in wars like violence and yes. honor and yep. when it's okay to kill someone and when it's not. And I, I, I laugh because of this idea that we went in there thinking that we were superior in our culture. Well, they felt the same way toward us, right? I mean, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, their culture, you know, they're very proud of their culture. Uh, when you talk to them, uh, or go to the, visit the bazaar to buy a scarf or a chess set or something. That they're very proud to talk to you and very proud to try and um, show off their wares as well as uh, discuss and describe what makes it uh, Afghanistan a special place, something they're proud of. How, how is geospatial intelligence problematic, understanding the geography of Afghanistan? Yeah. I, I've talked to a lot of people who... They're not stupid. They're well-educated. Yeah. Uh, who, when you tell them about Afghanistan, they're like, oh, the desert. Like, no, I right, mean... That, that, right, I know. That's the thing. It's it, like, no, no, just stop. Let's get some <laughs> pictures together. Um, right. Yeah. I, I would... Uh, friends and relatives would send me a text or something or on chat with me on Facebook, and they say, is it hot over there? I said, well, no, it's snowed today, yeah. you know, because yeah. it's December in Kabul. It's, right. The, I, the weather was very much like Colorado, where I had come from at the time, so... Uh, yeah, there's just a lot of uh, ignorance, and um, Afghanistan is is not a country that's held together by its geography. You know, it kind of faces outward. Uh, Barfield goes into this in his book. This kind of for for uh, the 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 nation is bifurcated by the mountain range that goes through it, the Hindu Kush. The rivers go off in four directions. So there's kind of a Pakistan Pashtun leaning mm-hmm. uh, place. There's kind of a the western part of the country leans toward Iran. The northern parts lean toward uh, Turkmenistan and and Russia and so forth. And they're driven by the trade and the opportunities, the languages and the the cultural religious norms and so forth that come from those areas. So it's it, just on its own, even in peaceful times, uh, even all Islamic. It can be a tough place to govern. Yeah. Well, I, there was a something on Twitter where uh, somebody had posted this gorgeous picture of these rolling green hills, mm-hmm. and it said, "Guess where this is?" And like the first twenty responses, like New Zealand, yeah, you know, yeah. or like that's Colorado or whatever. Right. No, it's Afghanistan. Right. And it's, it's a beautiful yeah, place, a g- yeah. gorgeous country. And, and yeah. people think Arabs are there. They're right. not. They're not Arabs. Uh, nope. But Muslim means Arab means desert. Right. And somehow it's <laughs> the Middle East. And, right. you know, I think that misunderstanding. Certainly, I think when people went in in 01, yeah. right after 9-11, there weren't a lot yeah. of people at CIA or in the U.S. military that had been paying a whole lot of attention right. to Afghanistan right. prior to that. There were a few um, officers in the Army who studied the Soviet campaigns. Of course, they were very well aware that uh, air power helicopters the, the people who would help them with the stingers. I mean, the whole purpose of the stinger was to do the counter air and give yeah. the Mujahideen a chance against, um, you know, it was kind of uh, rock, paper, scissors. The Soviets were trying to use air power to overcome the terrain in the mountains, and then the stingers trying to overcome yep. the air power, the helicopters and the fighter jets and so forth that the Soviets were using. So the terrain governs a lot. Well, let's talk about the transition. Is that, that's mm-hmm. the, Your chapter is 
so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Reading about what could have potentially been. Right. Um, but you, you lead it off with a pretty obvious statement, but maybe for some it needs to be said that we're used to wars ending with parades and, or maybe yeah. not we, because right. we haven't seen one of those since maybe Desert <clears throat> Storm. But, you know, historically, that's what you think of a treaty at the end of the war. Right. They sign away their sovereignty. We rebuild Germany and Japan. Everyone's happy. Right. There's not going to be one of those here. Probably not. Yeah. Well, and the Bonn conference, you know, in many ways was kind of that. But then the Taliban wasn't there. Right. Right. Yeah. So, it's, it's like negotiating without the Viet Cong. Yeah. You know, during yeah. it's like it's not gonna, <laughs> big deal. Great piece of paper is worth, worthless right. completely. Um, and I suppose, uh, well, we could talk about the Constitution, too, in a bit. But, yeah, there's there's probably not going to be any treaty like that here. Uh, and so it's it's almost like 1945, post-war, Cold War, Germany. Uh, Conrad, Conrad Adenauer, if you're familiar with, stepping on the carpet. He was told, you know, he was the uh, German representative to talk to the four powers and uh, the uh, commissioners who were running the occupation for France, Britain, the Soviet Union and the United States, and he was told not to step on the carpet, and he stood on the carpet to speak to them. You know, that was kind of his coming of age to say, no, Germany is here, we're going to do certain things, and you might not like all of them. Well, that was interesting and, about Afghanistan was the fact that everybody wanted this transition to happen. The Afghans yeah, exactly. wanted it, the Americans wanted it, the coalition wanted it, but not a single side, and even within certain members like the United States, not even a single entity had the same idea of how it was going to actually take place. Exactly. And then there was, you know, the Taliban wanted it. The yeah. Pakistanis wanted it. Uh, everybody wanted it, but it, it really came down to, well, what does it mean? Right. And so uh, for us inside the headquarters and for General Petraeus, it was very much de- defining it as a conditions-based. He said, you can, uh, kind of like going back to what my friend said about uh, that meeting with aid, USAID people. Mm-hmm. Now, if you give soldiers an order and the order is hand over the flag, they're going to come up with a way to do that and hand over the flag to the Afghan in the area. Um, but you won't get the uh, results you want if the conditions aren't ready for them to take the flag. Right. And but so conditions-based wasn't what the White House was pushing at no, the time. No, it definitely was not. Uh, it was rather remarkable. Uh, when, when General Petraeus went off to uh, his CIA confirmation hearings, in uh, in June of 2011, and we had just transitioned uh, the first tranche, the first round of, of areas had gone over, and we're getting ready for the second one and so forth. I think that was announced in July of 2011, so this was coming up, and we were finalizing plans and so forth. Uh, and President Obama basically told General Petraeus at the White House at the time, um, no, in 2009, when I said the withdrawal would start in the summer of 2011 I meant that yeah and of course as the president he gets to decide that we were all I mean the mood in the headquarters was it was in the toilet we uh, General Petraeus and we all were along the lines of he's going to go there and he's going to argue that it should be conditions based the risk is too great for it not to be and then when he got uh, outranked and and outvoted on this and the transition would start later that summer we wouldn't have the troops for as long as we thought we would need, and that the conditions really didn't matter. Um, the condition of Which the calendar I mean, yeah, uh, no, drove I mean, everything. I mean, I, I, look, I, I, people who listen to this podcast understand that I'm a little left of center, and I certainly you know, don't dislike President Obama. I think he did a lot of really good things, but Obama was the president of the United States, which meant he controlled our troops— he sure. didn't tell the Pakistanis or the Taliban or the Afghans right. Right. or the other NATO partners or the UN. Right. He wasn't in charge of all of them. So yeah. how, how did the White House assume that, I understand we're the most powerful nation on earth, but how the White House assume that he yeah. could snap his fingers and say this date on the calendar and everybody else is going to agree yeah. and be ready for that transition to take place at this, that time? This is the thing that really astonished me. It, was, it became clear in, well... March or April or so to me that what transition meant in the White House was different than what it meant to General Petraeus. And it even came clear, I mean, we had uh, agreed at Lisbon that transition would be conditions-based. All the allies in ISAF and NATO and the ISAF contributing nations had agreed that it would be conditions-based. 
Secretary General Rasmussen, um, a, a Dane, I believe, who was Secretary General of NATO at the time, said to, that, that to leave before it's ready would be a disaster. Um, that was in November of 2010 when the Lisbon Treaty, or it wasn't a treaty, when the Lisbon Accord was agreed. And while I'm certainly not an expert on how NATO comes to agreements and so forth, um, they all left there, with, and these were our marching orders. So I think from Petraeus's point of view, he, he thought he had what he needed to do a conditions-based transition from the coalition political direction, from the NATO uh, heads of, heads of uh, governments and, and foreign ministers and so forth. Um, but then it became clear in March when he went to brief them that, that the calendar was really the driving factor. And uh, uh, our ambassador quizzed him on that, and as I put in the chapter, uh, the ambassador uh, didn't get a, a straight response, and this caused a big hubbub in the White House. And Secretary Gates writes about this in his book. But it was clear even Secretary Gates didn't understand conditions-based right. uh, transition. So only we did. I mean, and by we, I mean those in the military headquarters and perhaps some in the embassy, uh, although precious few, understood that it was going to be conditions-based and that the transition would occur as the Afghans could do the job. I was like, how, how do you know the conditions have been met? And I'm, again, I'm yeah. trying to link this to an intelligence question, really, because right. I think it is. It's like, how do you, yeah. how do you correctly assess exactly. that you can pass this on to right. somebody? Because, look, if I'm the Taliban, I'm looking at two things. I'm going, if they go with President Obama, then we know for a fact what date we can kind of just sit back right. and relax and wait, right. and then when they leave, we can take them out. Right. But even the whole conditions idea, if you're studying this, you realize that they'll leave if there's not a lot of fighting in a certain province, and if we met yeah. certain conditions and we can pass it along, right. and then we can just sit back and chill until they feel they can leave. So how do you assess that the threat is no longer there, right. that the, the Afghans themselves are ready to stand up? Yeah. We had a fairly precise uh, matrix of the conditions at uh, defined, and we negotiated this with the Afghan general Payanda, who I mentioned in the book, um, as to how that would occur. Uh, the assessment piece and the transition piece was run by the same one-star brigadier in the headquarters. General Petraeus uh, organized it along that line. So I thought it was, at first, it was we were this kind of we were taken out of the plant shop, the J-5 or the CJ-5, and put into the assessment shop. And, it, and I thought, why is this done this way? As it, as it transpired, I thought it was the perfect thing to do because the same one-star then was responsible for assessing the campaign and which areas were progressing as far as enemy activity, but also as far as the Afghan police and army's ability to take over the war right. in that locality. Did they have the right equipment? How was their leadership and so forth? And that assessment was done with information from General Rodriguez and IJC, if you're familiar with, the, mm -hmm. who were running the war. And then it was also done with NTMA and those who were, who were training and preparing the Afghan army to fight. Um, so we were looking at the training pipeline and the readiness pipeline, and we were working with the Afghan Ministry of Defense and the Afghan General Staff, so we all understand the same terms. We sat in weekly meetings um, that I write about in the chapter with, with the assessment. So we'd sit there with Afghan Army intelligence officers who had many times started out the career with the Soviets. Right. <laughs> it's just a strange. Uh, I, I never thought that, you know, when I was in college, I'd be sitting with Afghans. <laughs> right, yeah. And when, well, they, when the Soviets were in Afghanistan, it was just... Uh, I, it's crazy. I, I did joint but, missions in Bosnia with the Russians. Yeah, exactly. Which was really weird. It was, but it was the '90s for us, yeah. and I was like, you know what? Let's get on this. Yep. We, BMD. Yep. We have a mission go. to do, and yeah. we're going to do it. So we'd sit in there in these big meetings, on, generally on Monday afternoons, and they'd have their intelligence. They'd bring their intelligence to the meeting, and we'd have stuff that was uh, cleared to share with them, and we'd come up with where the stoplight chart was. That was literally what we were trying to go to. It was a, a green, yellow, red based on the locality, the region, and the province, and so forth, of whether this was ready. And now, of course, you know, when they are looking at responsibility square in the face, they could bring up all kinds of stumbling blocks. Oh, the right. police aren't ready. We need more of this. We need more of that. We need more radios. Or the Many times we'd find out there were a lot of inter-Afghan squabbles between the Army and the police, or a locality that was kind of, uh, there's something going on there beneath the surface, and after talking with them a little while, you realize 
well, those army guys keep shelling our police position. Or there's fighting going on, and we'd have to think, uh, is this uh, a local concern, or is this some type of official problem? And so, you know, you'd rate that lower than you might have if, if we were just looking at equipment, right. for instance. So I think had that um, kind of process been allowed to occur, uh, we might have been able to actually come up with a 70 to 80% solutions on what the real conditions were. We'll have more with Ben in a moment, but let me take a moment to tell you a little about MHZ Choice. MHZ Choice is a streaming service that features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies. Stream right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. What's cool about this is these are not shows you've likely ever seen before, and they have some amazing spy-related content. The Weigensee Saga, which is a drama about a Stasi family in 1980s East Berlin. This is filmed on location at the site of the actual Stasi headquarters, which is now the Stasi Museum in East Berlin. There's also Cenk Batu, Undercover Agent, story of a man born in Germany to Turkish parents. He's an undercover agent with the State Bureau of Investigation in Hamburg. His ability to analyze people in situations put to good use as he works on a variety of cases ranging from industrial espionage and financial crimes to terror cells and political assassinations. And also the Hamilton Collection. These four different series are based on and inspired by the novels of Swedish author and journalist Jean Gillot, centering around the exploits of fictional Swedish super spy Carl Hamilton. Say that five times fast. Fictional Swedish super spy Carl Hamilton. They also have TD adaptations from some of the world's best crime fiction writers, including Agatha Christie, Donna Leone, and Camilla Lackberg. There's new content added each week, so you'll always have something new to watch, all with English subtitles. You'll get that, plus the entire MHZ Choice library, which includes over 2,500 hours of binge-worthy TV for only $7.99 a month. You can now try MHZ Choice free for 30 days, and after that you'll save 50% off your first month by visiting mhzchoice.com slash spycast and using the code spycast at checkout. That's mhzchoice.com slash spycast and use the code spycast at checkout. Well, the interesting thing I found from your chapter was this, like, this four stages of transition that you right, lay exactly. out. Right, exactly. Because it seems like that was well thought out. And if that yeah. had worked the way it was designed, right. Right. we may have been in a very different situation today. Right. Because uh, you can explain it, but local support, tactical, operational, strategic. Right. And it seemed the, the problem in the end, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was that it's the same problem with the overall countries, that calendar prevented this from happening yeah. the way it was supposed to because yeah. the timeline drove the process, not the capabilities of the people actually stand up right. and do the job. Yeah. When Petraeus left that summer then and General Allen took over, we walked him through that those stages of transition and so forth. He seemed to, uh, he understood that, um, and he wanted the Afghans to sign it. Now, this signs the United States and the coalition up to quite a bit. It also signs the Afghans up to quite a bit. And that was in July of 11. When I left in January of 12, it still hadn't been signed. Mm. It had been talked about at the Karzai level and at the uh, at General Allen level and at the ambassadorial level. I think when they looked in the details, they realized from our point of view, we had to give them a ton of countermine and counter IED equipment that they weren't really ready to go to. The Air Force had to be ready to do um, uh, support uh, the ground troops and so forth. The Air Force was years away from being ready to do that. Uh, so there might have been some squeamishness there on the ISAF side of signing it. Karzai, it was, it was related to me that Karzai asked his generals at one time, should I sign this? And uh, Minister Wardak said, not yet. It's not quite there. Hmm. I think that was probably in November or December. And I thought, they're such fools. If they, if they sign this, then we are committed. I mean, they're plugging us in. Right, you're basically, right? I mean, reading this, and this is fascinating from reading the kind of the layout of this, and, you know, it goes, it's almost like a Vietnamization process of uh, similar shifting, yeah. right. eventually slowly right. shifting the responsibility. But right. the whole local support, I would, say, I would say maybe an 80-20 U.S. or coalition, 80%. Yeah. Percent, right. The Afghans are 20%, right. and then what moves to tactical, you must 60-40. Right. And eventually you get to the strategic where we're only brought in Right. you know, just in case kind of yep. thing. But that part, like you're saying, does commit us yeah. to coming in and kind of saving their butts if they need right. it down the road. Well, and eventually it would be the Afghan army would come in to save the police. Right. You would want to get to a point where it's just the beat cop on a street. This is kind of the Western notion again, right? right? The beat cop on a street, uh, general law and order, traffic, 
bank robberies, this kind of thing. Um, and when the heavy empower was needed due to Taliban activity or something, the, the police would call uh, the army. And the army would be able to be organized and coordinated at the ministerial and at the staff level so that they could coordinate a division or a, uh, yeah, a core level kind of operation. So when you have two cores next to one another owning a region or regions in Afghanistan, and the two cores, the 205th Corps and the 203rd Corps, can coordinate activities amongst those two two-stars or three-star generals, then you're at a point where, okay, we're done here. Right. You know, our work is pretty good. The police are handling things, local crime, this kind of thing. And when Taliban activity gets to be too much for the police, they call the army, and the army handles it. And that's kind of the goal of those four stages. But that the key thing was that the Afghans were responsible on day one from the first stage of transition. And this is the thing that I don't know that our ambassador uh, or, or Secretary Gates understood, but this is the thing that General Petraeus and General Allen understood was, no, the Afghans are responsible on day one. So that even the most troublesome province, you could hand off Garmsar or parts of uh, uh, Kandahar to the Afghans, and we're still there in a pretty good force, but the Afghans are responsible. And so they're learning how to take responsibility, right. and they're seen as being responsible for the, their efforts from the local Afghan population. How much, uh, there seem to have been some unforeseen problems that were, uh, maybe they were foreseen, but they seem to have issues. A lot of it dealing with things like the economy of Afghanistan. When we pulled yeah. tens of thousands of soldiers out, I mean, anyone who's been in a military base, right. Military bases are in the middle of nowhere, and they're supported basically by all the stuff that pops up around the military base. Right. And, and if you close Fort Hood, where I was stationed tomorrow, right. there would be mass economic chaos. Oh, and, right. Because there's just tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people that depend on that military base for their life savings, right. for their living, basically, right. for, for, for existing. And that started happening in Afghanistan yeah. as the Americans began to pull out right. and the, it hit the relatively young people and relatively young men the hardest. Right. Uh, so if all of a sudden you have a lot of young men that don't have jobs. Right. Yeah. Uh, hopefully people are seeing where I'm going. Right. Well, they're, <laughs> they're not streaming straight into the Taliban, but they are a little ticked off. Yeah. And, and the, the, I mean, just that you don't have to have a PhD in economics to know that if you're pouring billions of dollars, if the world is pouring a billion dollars into Afghanistan, and then in two years, you're not. Right. Where, what does that do to the economy? You know, where you have all the spending and these job creation going on, and then you're going to cut it off. Uh, this is Ghani, and Ghani ran transition for them at the time. Um, this is, and he's, he understands uh, third world development. This is his, his whole scholarship is based on this type of thing. So for him, transition meant that was keeping the money coming. And well, Ghani, you have him saying in your book that yeah. the security itself to run this costs six billion dollars a year for security, right. and right. they're 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 only bringing in like one point seven billion right. for everything. Right. Uh, that it, seems that seems problematic. It is problematic, <laughs> and this this is, goes to the kind of the heart of how a government functions. You know, the, the British in the eighteenth century uh, and in the late sixteenth sixteenth century developed a tax system that really was second to none. And this, was, this enabled them to buy the Navy and the Army they needed. Um, the, the Afghans only get taxes from border and customs. Mm. There's no post office in Afghanistan. People don't have legal addresses. So there's, when you think about the, just the basic things that, would, that enable a tax structure to happen, there's no sales taxes. So if, if you could roll in and say, well, you're going to have to charge sales tax. You're going to have to figure out a different tax base. Well, they're unable to do that. Right. You know? Um, and, and so these types of things that we, again, it kind of came down to these types of things that we assume about a culture that just is absent there. You know, the first thing when I was advising at the uh, Afghan Military Academy, there's no publishing industry in the language of instruction. <laughs> so so the history the head of the history department was taking a book that was given to him by some West Point faculty and translating it himself into Dari and this, that project probably took him two years right so you think about just the, where they have to start 
there's no at the time when I was there in 2011 there was no cement plant tons of construction going on no cement plant so a lot of people point to corruption as the reason that we can't just dump tons of money in it how, how big yeah. of an issue was I mean that's that somewhat seems like a bit of a crutch for the reason that we can't do the necessary yeah. uh, institutional building and, and the infrastructural building but how much did it really prevent a lot of that from taking place well, I don't know uh, if I put my uh, finger on a percentage or anything. Oh, I, but, I mean, just in a general sense. Just, just culturally, again, the corruption is seen. If you're benefiting from the corruption, then it's not corrupt, right? <laughs> if it's your clan or your family or so forth that's getting some off the top and is putting their kids to school because they're, they're being corrupt, then there's nothing wrong with that. So when, if you're on the outs of that, though, you're pretty angry. And a lot of people who are on the outs of that from their government, uh, a lot of these young men who now are probably cast about without jobs and so forth, um, that's that's a breeding ground for hatred and disgust and, and uh, uh, alienation from their government. There seem to be archaic rules also. Again, we call them archaic because I'm looking at it from a Western perspective. Right. But I think it was Ghani who, when he first became in charge of basically you know, the future of Afghanistan before he had become, yeah. uh, before he had taken over for Karzai, mm-hmm. uh, tried to s- distance himself from the Karzai yeah. government by right. not taking an official job. Right. But then we sent all, NATO and the West sent all these funds. Yeah. And because of the laws saying that you couldn't be outside of the government and be, take care of this money, he couldn't do what he was intended. It right. just, you're like, this is such a catch 22. Yeah. You want to stay away from corruption, but right. because of that, you can't do anything. Right. It, it just became, you just never knew what the real story was yeah. behind that. And evidently he and uh, the, the finance minister were rivals, and so the finance minister was happy to use the law against him at that point um, not to fund him. But but this disabled his ability to do that. He was going to do, his goal was have 60 or 100 and so forth engineers. In fact, I was, I was at a transition dinner in um, Helmand province. Sitting next to me was an Afghan from Ghani staff, who had gone to the South Dakota School of Mines and Tech. And there I was, I grew up in South Dakota, and he's, I, he asked me, you know, we're getting to know each other as we're passing the non around. Um, he says, where in the United States are you from? And his English was quite good. I said, I'm from South Dakota. He said, oh, I went to college in South Dakota. I love the Black Hills and all this stuff. Uh, they were, he had picked some very highly capable people, but in the end he couldn't have the staff he needed. Uh, and that force that that meant that that work was more on the ISAF staff than on the uh, Afghans, who we were trying to train to get ready to do that. Right. The you whole know? idea of you can't transition over to the Afghans if right. they can't get the funding and support right. that they need from their own government. Right. And the generals, you know, the look on their faces when they realized that these decisions were being made without their input. That was another kick right in the gut to them, too. They would come to these meetings. They would sit there and discuss all these things. And then we would tell them, well, it looks like this is the places that are going to transition uh, in the next round. And I remember one of the generals saying, well, they haven't heard from us yet. How do they know? Well, uh, politicians make their decisions on their timetables. Yeah. I think that was what we told them. And, and so, But that was an opportunity to teach them and to have them go through the process of working between the interior ministry, between the army, and the other security ministries about how to do this on a national level basis. And we undercut that when we took those decisions away from them. We'll have more with Ben in a moment, but first a little about HelloFresh. This past week, I had the opportunity to try HelloFresh for the first time. What I found I liked about HelloFresh was really what distinguishes them and what sets HelloFresh apart. First of all, and this is huge, individual boxes to organize each meal's ingredients which it seemed to me dramatically cut the time I expected to spend cooking the meals. In the end, each meal takes only about 30 minutes. At HelloFresh, every box they send is the result of obsessing over hundreds of details and decisions related to all things food, farms, and flavor. Look, you could tell from the get-go that HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to help make it nutritionally balanced and tasty. And let's be honest, for me, which one matters more? HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. They're different because, well, anyone can deliver a box of food. HelloFresh opens up an experience that brings the fun of cooking back into our lives. 
or perhaps can bring it to some of your lives for the very first time. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes. And that's for everyone, from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. For less than $10 a meal, HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients, measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. What's also cool are the box options. HelloFresh currently offers customers a classic box, a veggie box, and a family box. Customers can order three, four, or five different meals per week designed for either two or four people. And new recipes are created every week. They're constantly experimenting in the kitchen to let fresh, natural ingredients shine. They offer ever-changing menus, classic ingredients in a new light, and easy-to-follow recipes to help you avoid that food coma and feel good inside and out. HelloFresh is now even offering light spring meals and has just introduced breakfast options. Holy cow. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll live to cook, so get cooking. And today you can get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. Just visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code SPYCAST30. That's HelloFresh.com and enter SPYCAST30. You now have no excuse. Get cooking. Now, again, we talked about the subtitle of the book being somewhat depressing. Uh, But it's, it's... there are some successes from the last 15 plus years yeah. now in Afghanistan. I thought interesting in the, in the conclusion of the book, it, it goes through some of these. Now they're hard to gauge of course, because the numbers that this, they're not like U S census, which is still not perfect, but right. because of corruption and you know, some of the interesting accounting practices, like how many people are actually in schools because you know, yeah. they keep people on rolls for years after they dropped out. But can we safely say, that Afghanistan today is no longer a safe haven for terrorism or kind of theocracy. I mean, the way it was prior to our invasion. Oh, one. yeah. I mean, things have improved. And I think Aaron points that out in the, in the conclusion. Things have improved. Um, you know, when the connectivity, literal connectivity I have with some of my friends on Facebook, and you, you ask them how it's going, uh, and they tend to be in Kabul, um, you know they're very guarded and the message is very brief but they're still there and they're yeah. and they're you know, if you, I was surprised in some of my uh trips outside into Kabul life goes on right uh little kids running around with popsicles which means there's electricity because right. you have to have a refrigerator for a popsicle so uh there's shopping in the market um gasoline in the cars um Life, life is occurring. Universities, and, though, have popped yes, up. Yes, yeah, uh, universities and the American University in Kabul, which has been attacked on a couple of times. They've had people uh, killed, but they, they've just, again, they've reopened their doors. Um, in fact, I got an uh, ad to see if I wanted to come and be <laughs> <laughs> to work over there again. Uh, um, uh, so life is going on. Uh, they're getting an education, and I think it, it's a generational after generation type of aspect. But again, it will be defined by what they're able to make it and how, and the culture that they have. So, let me, one thing people may not understand is the relationship between the Afghan people and the Taliban is not a pretty rosy relationship. No, that, I mean, in general, they don't like the Taliban no, very much. That's the one thing we yeah. have going for us yeah. is the hatred of the Taliban. You know, such a small percentage actually want them back. Uh, they lived with them for a uh, well, about six, seven years, I guess. Um, some places longer than that. Uh, they understand what they mean. They understand their intent. And so that that is not something that's very popular. Of course, we spent a trillion dollars to get to right. the point we are today. So. See, I think if we, if we had started kind of thinking about things at the local level, understanding the unpopularity of the Taliban, and trying to run a counterinsurgency campaign based on what Karzai and Obama... Uh, if they had, could have come together on what the, the strategy could have been from 2009 on, or certainly Bush uh, with Karzai could have come together on what a strategy would be, I think ultimately it really comes down to that. You know, if you think of all the, what these wanted to do, different notions of counterinsurgency strategies as a Venn diagram, mm-hmm. different brands of that type of strategy, somewhere the overlapping part, uh, whatever President Obama and President Karzai could have agreed upon, Whatever that could have been, that's what she, we should have done, and maybe still could work. Well, I was going to ask you about like what what is the way forward? What you look at the yeah. with the Trump administration and some of the general like you know like Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, yeah. and others. Like yeah. they obviously he and H R McMaster 
clearly have experience or they know people very yep. well who have yep. been worked in this field. Some of them were more Iraq than Afghanistan, but they yeah. certainly know what they're doing. Yeah. It, McMaster it, understands yeah. Afghan corruption very well. Yeah. I would say, I mean, these are people who are as much a kind of the, the warrior scholar as Petraeus was That's before right. him. Yeah. Um, you know, so is there a, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but yeah, you know, I will. What's your five, <laughs> 10 and 20 year predictions for, uh, yeah. for how Afghanistan turns out? It can be very vague too. So well, you put on the it, spot I think it bad. all, it all depends. The United States, we have to figure out how to deal with Pakistan. Um, and I don't know what that looks like, but somewhere between their holding their nuclear weapons over our head and their activity with the Taliban, that has to stop. Uh, so that situation has to be sorted out. And if that, I don't know if that means uh, Pakistan-Indian relations, a uh, big part of this, you know. We go back to the Duran line. We can solve we, that. We can solve no that. Problem. It would all be better. Yes. Um, but somewhere we have to, to kind of sneak one past the goalie on some of this stuff and say, encourage, uh, well, I, I don't have a lot of hope with the Pakistanis. Yeah. I mean, their mindset is their mindset. So, Can Iran be a player? I mean, they're obviously a border. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the Iranians have done some uh, things in, the, in Afghanistan in the past and certainly in the western areas with trade. The Iranians have probably uh, hindered and helped. Um, is ISIS going to be an issue? I mean, uh, I don't see that taking off. That's uh, a long way for them to go. I mean, again, it, people's yeah. problems with geography, they may think that they're right, right there. Right there, but yeah. But there's a bit of a hike for them to get all the way over to Africa. Well, it can be a native right. type of uh, growth, and I think ISIS Khorasan is, is the native thing that uh, got got the, the Moab hit, uh, strike right. the, uh, last month or two months ago. Um I think the the biggest thing is this, the solving the remnant and the hangover of the Durand line and the Pashtun issue with Pakistan, uh, and then getting after corruption uh, in the Afghan government. Um, I had high hopes with Dr. Ghani, a pretty clean guy as far as we could determine, as far as I can determine, squeaky clean. Uh, but the Afghan people have to believe that he's squeaky clean and that the people in his cabinet are that way uh, for that to really, for him to engender some force. And the election, his election, um, with the Tajiks and with a lot of people, didn't leave a lot of room for hope there. Right. So it'll be interesting. His re-election, I guess, will be in a couple of years, uh, how that goes. And uh, I think as far as a prediction for me, I think... A peaceful transition of power, which occurred between Karzai to Ghani, was a very positive thing. I think I would hope that they could revisit their constitution to where they could have less of a French model and more of a Afghan model. In other words, the Swiss cheese right. uh, analogy, right. and to allow more local control. Um, it's, it seems kind of astonishing to me that as, you know in America we don't our governors, our state governors, aren't appointed by the president. They're looked, elected by the people in the state. Uh, but in Afghanistan, that everything is appointed from Kabul. Uh, and, it's just, and the government doesn't have the capacity to run even the appointment system. Yeah, I was say, the are they, are so, they standing up bureaucracies? Is there a Commerce Department and a Treasury Department and a transportation? Is there an intelligence community? Is there, there is. There's a transportation. There's civil air and ministry yeah. transportation. There's a higher education ministry. There's an education ministry. That, I mean, they have the buildings. that They were all there from the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Uh, they have a parliamentary or they have a secretariat. It's kind of based on the British model that runs the cabinet officials and so forth. Very powerful people. Um, and so they have that model. Uh, of a of a government bureaucracy largely mo- patterned after the British that they took with them when they became a modern state in the 19 teens and 20s and so forth. Uh, so that is that is there, and within Kabul, there is a habit of it and a tradition of it being there. But does it extend out to well the this, full reaches of that? Yeah, yes, this is this is right? where their own yeah. constitution is part of the problem. Yeah. I think so. If they can continue to have peaceful transition of power, if they can amend their constitution or by habit just ignore the parts that won't work you know Karzai did this too he would have these uh, lawyer jurgas where he would come in and, and say okay I put before you people 
this decision of should I sign the document with the with the Americans? And they would meet, everybody would come to Kabul, they would meet for three or four days in this big thing. Meanwhile, the parliament's down the road and having nothing to do with right. this. I mean, it just seems crazy, but Karzai is exercising the traditional and meaningful, in many ways, aspects of, of uh, Afghan power. We would like to thank M8Z Choice, HelloFresh, and Harry's for the continued support of SpyCast. Remember, you can try MHZ Choice free for 30 days, and after that, you'll save 50% off your first month by visiting mhzchoice.com spycast and use the code spycast at checkout. You can also get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh by visiting hellofresh.com and entering the promo code spycast30, that's spycast30. And Harry's will give you $5 off one of their shave sets. And this is for a limited time only, so act now. That's harrys.com spycast to get $5 off today. Well, Ben Jones is a contributor to a new book, Our Latest Longest War, Losing Hearts and Minds in Afghanistan. Like I can tell you, I know a pretty significant amount about what's been going on in Afghanistan in the last 15, 16 years. But this book really kind of, it, it's wonky, but in all the right ways. You know, it it's, it's gives you the insight from people who know more than just about anybody on what we've been doing in Afghanistan. So I highly recommend this. Ben, thank you for taking the time to join us here on SpyCast. If you want to hear his earlier one from about a year ago, last May, I would definitely check that one out. Uh, and then we'll have you back when the next one comes out. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Sure, thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.